Today I have Richard Harvey joining me. He is a renowned psychotherapist who uses spirituality as part of his therapy. Join me. Hi, Richard. Uh, how are you? Hi, Evan. I'm really well. Thank you. And I know you're joining us from across the pond. Where exactly? Uh, I live in uh, Andalusia, which is in the, is in the south of Spain, um, in the Granada province. Oh, nice. What's the weather like out there? Uh, it's really hot. Really, uh, well, strangely hot, really. It's October. We should be cooling down a little bit, but, you know, it's, it's very hot, actually. Uh, now, Richard, uh, I want to ask you something. Um, what does it mean when someone has an awakening? Do you think that uh, human beings, for the most part, uh, in their lives, they're they're asleep to a certain extent, and once they they come into contact with uh, some information or some sort of understanding, they're awakened? What does that mean exactly for those who don't know? This uh, awakening word is perhaps uh, a little overused at the moment. Um, it does, of course, mean uh, coming to a conscious sense of one's life or what it means to be a human being. I mean, I think we must look at it very broadly and we should look at it in terms of people's capacity and potential, which is various. Um, and we should also bear in mind, at least in the kind of work I do, which is psychological, spiritual awakening, um, that some people seek uh, spiritual awakening and some people simply uh, have the awakening inherent in being in a human life. So it's really very diverse um, and varied. When I work with people uh, psychologically and spiritually, it really amounts to becoming more aware, um, less automatic, less reactive. And if uh, the person persists in inner work, then um, it's not unlikely that there will be awakenings of sorts or insights, breakthroughs, this kind of thing. Um, that lead to an awakening experience of some kind. Okay, so an awakening really means a greater understanding. Is that, is that what I'm getting from you? Can I prefer to say experience, something, something more holistic than just in case understanding in this, in this case means um, something intellectual? I'd prefer to think of it as uh, something more experiential, at least related to meaning. Okay. And so, so it really means a, a certain experience that might uh, garner you more, uh, more meaning in life. More meaning in life. And I think we have to say that whilst insight and breakthrough may be used in psychological work quite um, commonly, that the kind of awakening, I think this is probably true, that we're talking about these days, that many people are talking about, involves some aspect of the spiritual, doesn't it? Right. Um, I know there's, a, in the United States, there's a, uh, there used to be a Democratic candidate uh, named Marianne. Uh, Marianne, I forgot her last name. Um, Williamson. But she was, what's that? Williamson. Williamson, yeah. yeah and she yeah. and she was uh, definitely bringing up these topics of spirituality and how there's a kind of like a, a national 
a psychological character to it that's, that was very dark. And I thought it was very interesting how a lot of people responded to that uh, in a very positive way because I think people now uh, across this country and really around the world are kind of coming coming into the understanding that uh, these elements are definitely real and uh, definitely a part of, of human life. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Marianne Williamson's been in the forefront of popular um, psycho-spirituality for many, many years. Um, I think she's fallen out of the race now, and um, I, I don't know as she was very likely to have um, got, got through with those ideas and the kind of way she was speaking about things. But... Um, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, perspective on life and, and how we see it. I mean, let me just say something personally from my experience. I I fell into the uh, psycho-spiritual world in the 70s when I was in my 20s. And at that time, we looked to America and we looked to the West Coast particularly and we looked to um, psychologists uh, and spiritual uh, teachers from that area. And so from my point of view or from the perspective of someone who's uh, worked and grown up in the humanistic tradition transpersonal tradition of psychology these are um, established uh, waves of psychological discipline uh, practice and theory um, america's been spiritual for a very long time it's also invited um, spiritual uh, teachers, masters, not only from the East, um, but also from, uh, you know, other countries, not necessarily Eastern. And there's been many communities in America um, that have come and gone that, that still exist. Um, so from my from my perspective, although I, I can understand what you're saying from a popular viewpoint, but really it's been rumbling there for um, about 100 years, you know. Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of uh, philosophers who kind of uh, take away from Asian or, or uh, what, what they call the, the philosophy of the Orient. Um, and it's, it's usually kind of disguised as Western philosophy. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think that, um, you know, I've written quite a bit about this. You know, we had a merging of Eastern and Western thought, and we did have, we do have some contradictions in the tradition of the uh, viewpoint of the east uh, when it meets the viewpoint of the west but if we bring them together and in my own work in a sense i bring them together to make some kind of sense of them we can see them as a uh, process or even a continuum really um, the contradictions don't have to be as harsh as they seem to be. They can simply be, um, you know, different stations along the way um, in, in the process of inner work, be it spiritual or psychological. Uh, certain um, s events happen that have to be seen in different kinds of ways, which is why being general about spirituality is often problematic yeah and that's why i have you here to get more specific about it <laughs> <laughs> i'll do my best <laughs> and uh, that's another question i have lots of people i meet in life uh, always say things like hey you know what i'm not religious but i'm spiritual i'm hmm. not i'm not i'm not a christian but i'm spiritual what does it mean to be spiritual i know it's a very it's a word that's 
that's used a lot by lots of people, many different ways. But what does it mean to you? And what do you think is the appropriate way to to use the word spiritual in context to to these kind of subjects? Well, you're right. It's used in a, a whole variety of ways. So um, we, I can only really say uh, what it is in my work. And um, the way in which I approach it is uh, spirituality is really um, a concern with the invisible world is uh, an apprehension perhaps of something other than uh, material reality what we see the usual um, uh, relative world of space and time and all the events that take place within it so if you have um, a propensity of a, a sense of that maybe um, early life experiences and so on then it may lead you in a spiritual direction of some sort to make some kind of a sense of um, event of experiences which were not normal you know not not usual the thing about the religion versus spirituality dichotomy is, is many of us most of us i have have begun to let go of the word religion not that it isn't a valid word and it doesn't make um, a lot of sense in terms of uh, spirituality but because it tends to be associated with the organization of spirituality and the the difficulty of this field is once you organize it and certainly once other um, interests come in then you wind up with church you wind up with uh, establishment expressions of spirituality to get further and further away from the thing itself in essence you can't organize spirituality whereas i think we can say religion is an organized spirituality and it almost seems like religion is a um is a packaged version of spirituality well, yeah, I mean, re religion has, I, I think we know now, over the centuries been a source of fear, has been a political instrument. Um, religions have allied themselves to societal uh, influences of, of all different kinds. And once that happens, the spirituality at the center of the religion, which undoubtedly there is at the center of um I, all religions, I'm, I'm, I think I'm just about to say that, all religions, there is centrally a valid spirituality, but to all intents and purposes, once it's applied societally, politically, and within an atmosphere of fear, um, that spiritual nucleus is invalidated. I see. And so, and so I guess when people say things like, hey, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, it's like they're reaching into that nucleus that's been invalidated, taking it back for what it was originally understood as. Yeah, they've found something, so, something out, haven't they? Something of the essence, something of the interior, the the core of it. And let's bear in mind that we've had, again, this timescale, about a hundred years of disillusionment with um, re religion on a grand scale at least in the West, uh, in Europe and America, it was really uh, at the beginning um, of the century with the First World War, later on the Second World War, many, many people became disillusioned with a God that would allow something like that to happen. And then you have the rise of what's known as the New Age. And the New Age stood at the time, at least, for spirituality without uh, organized establishment 
religious flavor. But of course, like all these things, the new age itself has become um, a structured. So we're kind of in this funny place with the new age or the new kind of thinking about spirituality in the tradition which is that maybe it's invalidated itself or become passé, really. Why do you think that well, that is with humankind, where something of value is discovered, and then we all clamor around it, and then we, we all want to possess it and organize it and then sell it to others? Why, why, is, it, why, why is there that need for humans, you think? I think that... Um, I think we should look to the 20th century. I think we look to propaganda. We look to the use of psychology. We look at uh, commercialization, uh, corporations, business, of course, advertising, all these kinds of things. It, it, it became a way of life, didn't it? Um, from the early part of the century to, to actually sell things. I mean, something very interesting happens at the beginning of the century where people used to buy things for, you know, wear and tear and things were sold to people because, you know, you could buy a pair of shoes and last you your lifetime or maybe you'd have two pairs of shoes. But now, I don't know about you, you know, I've got 10, I don't know, 15, maybe more because none of them are expected to last all that long. Um, and we have ourselves become something of what it is that's been offered to us in the world of propaganda and celebrity and advertising, uh, commercialization. And I'm afraid spirituality went that way too. It's interesting you mentioned that. I just uh, uh, did an interview uh, with a guest and we, we brought the same subject up about how uh, before uh, back in the day we used to, like, like you said, we'd buy something that we actually needed and now we buy things because we feel we need them and how there was this in instrumental person who kind of who, who kind of was uh, responsible for that kind of new uh, way of life uh, his name was Edward Bernays i don't know if you're familiar with him i am he was freud's nephew and um he used the insights of western psychology to create a body of work which was enormously effective um, and it, he was able to manipulate situations so that you, you, know, you would buy that thing, not because it was a quality thing, but you would buy that thing because of the lifestyle and the uh, image um, and what it was associated with. And that's how he single-handedly really got women to start smoking. That, I don't know if you've happened upon this one, but um, women didn't used to smoke. It was a man's occupation, right? It was. Yeah, it was actually taboo for a woman to smoke back then. And okay. and he, he did something where he choreographed a situation, a parade, where uh, he would strategically position cameras to take video or film of, of women smoking a cigarette, almost like as a rebellion of independence right. for themselves. And it and so in that, in that sense, those are the kind of events and the kind of minds who are usually involved and responsible for the changing of the current society we live in, if you, if you think about it that way. Men have invoked a taboo against women smoking in public. Can you do anything about that? I said, let me think about it. And then I said, have I your permission to see a psychoanalyst to find out what cigarettes mean to women? He said, what'll it cost? So I called up Dr. Brill, A.A. Brill, who was a leading psychoanalyst in New York at that time. How come you didn't call your uncle? 
Why didn't you call your uncle? Because he was in Vienna. A. A. Brill was one of the first psychoanalysts in America. And for a large fee, he told Bernays that cigarettes were a symbol of the penis and of male sexual power. He told Bernays that if he could find a way to connect cigarettes with the idea of challenging male power, then women would smoke because then they would have their own penises. Every year, New York held an Easter Day parade to which thousands came. And Bernays decided to stage an event there. He persuaded a group of rich debutantes to hide cigarettes under their clothes. Then, they should join the parade, and at a given signal from him, they were to light up the cigarettes dramatically. Bernays then informed the press that he had heard that a group of suffragettes were preparing to protest by lighting up what they called torches of freedom. He knew this would be an outcry, and he knew that all of the photographers would be there to capture this moment. And so he was ready with a phrase, which was torches of freedom. And so here you have a symbol, women, young women, debutantes, smoking a cigarette in public with a phrase that means anybody who believes in this kind of equality pretty much has to support them in the ensuing debate about this because torches of freedom. I mean, what's on all American coins? It's liberty. She's holding up the torch, you see? And so all of this is there together. There's emotion, there's memory, there's a rational phrase, even though it's using a lot of emotional elements, it's a, it's a phrase that works in a rational sense. All of this is together. And so the next day, this was not just in all of the New York, papers, it was across the United States and around the world. And from that point forward, uh, the sale of cigarettes to women began to rise. He had made them socially acceptable with a single symbolic act. What Bernays had created was the idea that if a woman smoked, it made her more powerful and independent. An idea that still persists today. Embrace me my sweet embrace. It made him realize that it was possible to persuade people to behave irrationally if you link products to their emotional desires and feelings. The idea that smoking actually made women freer was completely irrational, but it made them feel more independent. It meant that irrelevant objects could become powerful emotional symbols of how you wanted to be seen by others. Eddie Bernays saw the way to sell product was not to sell it to your intellect that you ought to buy an automobile, but that you will feel better about it if you have this automobile. I think he originated that idea that they weren't just purchasing something, but they were engaging themselves emotionally or personally in, in, in the product or service. That it's not you, you think you need a new piece of clothing but you'll feel better with the piece of clothing. That was his contribution in a very real sense. We see it all over the place today, but I think he originated the idea of the emotional connect to a product or service. Perhaps we round on your previous question about awakening, really. I mean, it's good to wake up to what is it about me that is drawn to this, that, or the other object, and why do I place value in it? Um, uh, a good example, I think, at the moment is CDs. I mean, I'm, 
at least it is in my life. I mean, I have an enormous uh, shelf of CDs. They're more or less all redundant now because of the digital era and Spotify and all these other ways to listen to things which are far more uh, convenient. And it reminds me, at least, that um, I think it was in the 80s, um, there was a lot of bad press for the recording industry, the people or the people who dis- distributed recorded music, because we understood that a, a CD cost, you know, a few pennies. It, it, that's all it was. And yet we were prepared to go out and spend several pounds um, dollars in your country, you know, I mean, inordinate amount of money. Um, and of course, get this double treble CD thing going where you pay even more. I mean, all of that music could have been put on one. And in any case, whatever was on any CD was simply worth, you know, a few cents. That was it. So it's a very interesting thing to wind up as new technologies come into play and you wind up with these kind of worthless things, looking at them, thinking, well, what was I buying? I was buying an image. I was buying a piece of cardboard, really. Yeah, it's true. And, uh, and cycling kind of back to what we were talking before, what's been done to music, what's been done to uh, things like cars and clothing has also been done to things to do with spirituality. And what what do you think is a is a is a good way to kind of get access to that pure spirituality without all this noise? I I, I think you have to. Um, I mean, my advice would be to look around. By no means are the, in my view, uh, by no means does fame and celebrity. Um, dictate uh, the quality of teaching in spirituality it's certainly I, I think it's always been the case that uh, spiritual teachers may keep a very low profile they also may not by the way but um simply because you've sold millions of books doesn't mean that that is the quality of um spiritual teaching that that's required I have an ongoing controversy about this with people who know me and students and clients and colleagues and so on. There's the one school of thought, which isn't really my point of view, but there's the one school of thought which says that it's all valid. And if somebody finds a kind of shallow spiritual teaching, then that's good because it gets them into something that's deeper you know they go from there into a deeper teaching maybe deeper again and eventually they find um a a true teaching or a you know teaching of some depth but i tend towards the feeling that that's not really the case you know that um the trouble is with with the shallow teachings is they're not represented in that way as a one step that's leading to something else. It's very easy in this field because more or less the people who come to us don't really know what's going on. So it's very easy to pose in a place um, where you could say, you know, I have this depth of teaching when you didn't. Um, Because you know, who who knows any different, really. And uh, so somehow I think you have to follow your heart. You have to trust and, and find a place, if you can, where there's some kind of inner gauge. You know, you feel the authenticity of the teaching, the person that's uh, offering the teaching, this kind of thing. Okay. And what is 
the way of sacred what is the way of sacred attention what does that mean um way of sacred attention is the name for my work um i've been practicing for 40 years and i don't know about about 10 years ago or so a little bit before that i published my first book and then there was a feeling that I needed to give a title to what it was I did, which was difficult for me, partly because I couldn't conceive of a good title and partly because I was rather resistant to it. But in the end, sacred attention just kept being around. And I thought, okay, yeah, you know, that's what it is. And so finally, I produced a model based on my experience of working with people psycho-spiritually. And this model was not only my experience of working with many, many people, but it was also a way of um, connecting. No, not just connecting, but of in some detail explaining how individual psychology meets spirituality in a human being. Because um, since the 60s, which was the systematization of transpersonal psychology. And what that means is a little bit like what we were talking about already, the meeting of East and West. In America, in uh, California, in Big Sur, uh, Stangroff and other leading lights of the time got together to say, we're establishing this spiritual psychology, what we're going to call it. And they called it transpersonal psychology. And go around go across the Atlantic for a minute, you know, a few years later, I'm coming into that field. And we all knew that what we were involved in was some kind of, you know, hashing or merging or a dual sort of focus of the spiritual and the psychological. We knew something about the human being was spiritual or had a divine spark or something like this. And we worked on in that way with that knowledge. But what I realized sometime later was nobody ever told us how they fit together. And by the time we got into the 80s, I was meeting many people who were really confused about contemporary spiritual literature, about uh, reprints of uh, old um, spiritual religious uh, texts, the Tao Te Ching, the Bhagavad Gita, and this kind of thing. And they were confused because of the terminology. I mean, often these old um, uh, scriptures were translated in a certain kind of a way. Uh, words like the self, uh, words like uh, divine, words like love, um, spirit, the spirit itself, and the soul, spirit and the soul dichotomy, all these things were as confusing as you like. And, and it seemed like there was a lot of bewilderment in the field, not just on behalf of people who were coming to see therapists and teachers, but um, on behalf of therapists and teachers themselves. So I wrote a book trying to dispel that confusion and saying look it's kind of simple really you know it's, this is this and this is that and the soul isn't the spirit and bringing some an attempt anyway to bring some kind of clarity into it and when i had finished this book 
re- writing a book is fantastic because it's kind of like you put it all down. You know, it goes off to a publisher after a tremendous ordeal. Then it's out there and then it's kind of, you know, it, your life's different. There's this big space. And into that space came this very simple teaching which became known as the way of sacred attention. And that was that in the, shall we say, awakening process of a human being, there is a first stage of working through personality and attachment uh, to the past and the influence of early life conditioning. Roll on now to a third stage. I'll just come back to number two. We're in one, three, two at the moment. The third stage is the spiritual life. Um, so meditation, a spiritual teaching, a spiritual teacher, all the things that we think of as spiritual life, but authentic spiritual life. So the question is, how do, how do you get from one to three? And I proposed a second stage um, of human awakening in the way of sacred attention, which was the heartfelt, the heart-led life. And that's what I describe in my book, and that's what the way of attention is about. It really hinges on this second stage, because what I feel is that second stage has been left out. So we've had tremendously spiritual people and uh, teachers and the influence of a genuine spirituality, and we've had very sincere people practicing and uh, learning growing psychologically what we didn't have in place was the link you see what part do uh, psychedelics play in this in this kind of spiritual world in your opinion look psycho psychedelics have uh, you know from the 60s had a, a you know respected place in this we can't leave them out they've they've led, led to a lot of insights and so on it's not my way. Um, I don't. It's not something that I propound. And when people bring psychedelics in, um, we look at it, see what they want to do with it, and then find that really you come back, even if there has been a breakthrough um, from psychedelic experience. It has to be integrated. It has to be stabilized in. Um, some kind of consistent work in order to do that. So for those people who, who have that kind of uh, propensity, um, bring the insight, bring the revelation and uh, ground it in some kind of a way um, outside of the psychedelic experience. And what do you think people experience when they're in a psycho, uh, psychedelic state? Do you think it's real do you think it's part connected to the spiritual world or do you think it's completely in their heads? Well, everything's relatively real and um, yeah, you know, it's real and I, you know, I will talk to people who've, who've um, experienced, uh, I forget the word, ayahuasca ceremony or something like this, um, which is quite in vogue at the moment, as you perhaps know. Um, and I will treat it like anything else uh, as real. What I think it is, um, it has the potential to break through from this conditioned um, reality. Th this reality isn't the only one. It's by no means the, the highest one, let's say. So if you use that to unlock, if you use ayahuasca or you know, LSD or something to 
um, unlock the doors. Um, that's okay, but it must be integrated. You must stabilize in the insight. Okay, and uh, do you believe in reincarnation? What I say about it is, um, and this is by no means original, is we've got we have a hard enough time dealing with this life. You know whether or not, and we, we, this will be a long discussion. Reincarnation as opposed to rebirth tendencies that are in themselves an individual personality or contributors to some amalgam uh, that appears as another personality it's a long discussion uh, rebirth of tendencies or reincarnation of actual personalities and some people who i have respect for um, are convinced of reincarnation um, i deal with reincarnation the same as memories of this life you know, there was a past life already in this life. And uh, mostly we're so concerned with the past. I think it's no coincidence that reincarnation is a popular spiritual idea based on the fact that most people are attached to the previous moments of this life. That's a good and, point. Yeah. What I tend to find is uh, once you engage with inner work, reincarnation or not, in a, in a way, you're beginning every moment anyway. And uh, I know you mentioned earlier that uh, life has different levels and we're just at this plane. Uh, how do you see that and how, do, how is it structured in, in your opinion? Like, do, do you go into like a higher kind of consciousness and you live in another planet or in a different reality? How, how does that work? Human being is, is a bit like a fuse, you know. It's, um, as human beings... Firstly, we're, we're incredible, we're much more strange and uh, transcendent, weird and extraordinary than we, we tend to be aware of, we tend to know. Um, our heads in heaven, our feet are on the ground. And there is a symbol of what it means to be a human being. If you work on yourself through awakening processes, through something resembling my second stage it has to be that kind of experience the heart has to open the energy system has to be alive you have to be available you walk into a place which is totally different to um, ordinary mundane reality and yet it incorporates ordinary mundane reality and then what's happening is Whilst you are residing here as a human being in the relative plane of space and time, you're also as aware of uh, eternity outside of space and time. And it's not really up and down like this that I'm doing, but there's the symbol of it. And we've had that in place for a long time. So we work with that. Um, but really what we're doing in our full potential and capacity is moving between these two awarenesses. So full consciousness is the knowledge and the uh, experience of being human being in this life and also being something which is quite deathless and, and outside of time. Do you believe that if we think of something, it will be? I mean, I know the, the book The Secret is a very popularized some would say dumbed down version of, of this kind of dynamic or, or uh, idea within spirituality. The idea that you could think of something in the future that you would like, uh, 
and that somehow your your consciousness with with the uh, tight coupling of reality uh, manifests that that kind of goal or that idea that that you want do you think that kind of stuff is is real and it's and it's it's part of uh, spirituality I know it's real. Um, it is a low-level kind of spiritual teaching. This is the thing to re- remember about it. It's um, it's pretty much what everybody's doing the whole time anyway. It's just that people don't really know where their mind or their intention are, is, is at. If you know what's going on inside you and you understand that the being state projects outward into manifestation then you know the secret and uh, we used to call it laws of manifestation or creative manifest i mean it had different words but this basic principle is simply the human condition whether you're awoken or whether you're aware or conscious or not it's just that people really don't know what they're thinking in their mind or what they're feeling in their hearts or what intention they're bringing to the world i mean the uh, when you meet somebody more or less what's going on is exactly what should be going on from the point of view of their life is manifesting what is happening inside them and that's really what the secrets about what laws of manifestation about once you make that conscious in other words you can work with the intention you can work with the thoughts and the feelings and your whole uh, inner self then uh, there's tremendous dangers and the tremendous dangers are that you know you just want more and more of this and more and more of that and and all this kind of thing and so from a spiritual point of view it's a place you pass through you most certainly come to it but it's no big deal you know it's no big deal because having more and more of something where does that get you what sort of satisfaction do you expect from having you know, a hundred of something when you didn't appreciate it having it the first time. So, you know, it's... You're saying that most people do uh, manifest their own realities. They're just unaware of their abilities to do so. And once they are aware, um, they, they, they could start thinking in a way where they could manifest certain destinies. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the secret laws of manifestation and all of this is it, you come across that through doing inner work incidentally and if you come across it uh intentionally because you want um you know you want more stuff as you say you know want 100 cars or something like this or you know if it's your intention to go in there and you don't meet it organically for want of a better word that it's a part of the process it's already said something about you there's some sort of um uh, dissatisfaction, some sort of hunger, some sort of greed, perhaps, or some sort of materialism going on. And in that sense, then it wouldn't be spiritual at all. Because when it becomes material, it's not spiritual, a la what I said at the beginning, which is spirituality, is in the way I use it, is a concern with the invisible world, that which we can't see. And if So if the laws of manifestation are being used for, you know, I want an attractive partner, I want, um, you know, Aston Martin or something, or I want to be famous, these are all material things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things, by the way. You know. But but don't you think circumstance, in a way, is is a manifestation of your inner world? I mean, there's a one of my favorite authors. I mean, I would interview him if he was still alive. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Have you heard of uh, James Allen? 
No. The English English writer. Anyway, he 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 proposes that uh, our circumstances are manifestations of our inner workings of our thoughts. You know, even if it is a material thing, even if it is you want a car, you want whatever, in a way they're, they're kind of like archetypes of, of, of these thoughts uh, that are kind of reaching out uh, into the external world, but really reaching within, within ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you can have those experiences in your life when you intuit, uh, you know, where it's all going, what, what's happening, what you're already manifesting, because... Um, it can take some time you know it, it doesn't happen like this mostly it doesn't happen like this it takes some time right. but the important point I suggest from point of view of authentic spiritual practice is that and, and this is said about nearly all events in the world you become aware of it you let it be there you let it go you don't hold on to it you see right um, are there any topics that you want to talk about that I, I might have missed? Oh, um, you've asked so many uh, great questions, oh, really. Spirituality, thank you. The, thank you. You know, the way of sacred attention. Um, I, I There's some interesting things going on at the moment in recognition of the way of sacred attention. I... I, I perhaps I can mention, which is I, I have a thing called the Center for Human Awakening, which is an online center where we do courses, uh, lecture series, and a whole uh, gamut of other things. And um, we've what I didn't want to do is say, you know, this is something special, this is something that um, goes beyond the usual... Um, you know, models of psychology and spirituality. But at the moment, we're having some recognition, particularly from the world of science, which is rather validating and um, encouraging, which is that some aspects of the work that we do in the Center for Human Awakening is actually groundbreaking and perhaps proposing a new uh, psychology. And uh, where can people find out more about you and your center? www.centerforhumanawakening.com Thank you, Richard, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.